Cheers. Evening, everyone. You all right? It is good to be with you this evening. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Josh. I'm one of the clergy here. Uh, I'm the service pastor of this service, so it's good to be with you tonight. And carrying on our teaching series on Joshua, the best-named book of the Bible. There you go. Dad laugh for a dad joke. Right. <laughs> Over the last few weeks, we've been digging into uh, this book together, the journey that the Israelites are going on through it, the journey of Joshua, their leader, and what it can teach us here at St. Nick's about our posture towards God as we go out into the world. This series, we're looking at what it means to go, where our hearts should be as we go, as we take up that commission from Jesus to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all of creation. And as I said, we've been unpacking uh, the story of the Israelites recorded in the book of Joshua to do that. Week one, Isaac kicked us off uh, with a story about Joshua, the leader of the Israelites, commissioning, that he was commissioned and not qualified That as we go, it isn't about uh, what we bring to the table, what we can offer, but rather about uh, what God calls us into and therefore equips us for. It's about the presence of God going with us. Then Toby carried on looking at the story of Rahab, the prostitute, her place in the story, her declaration of who God is. Showing that it's about humility and not ability. That as we go into the world, we do so focus not on our own reputation, but on the reputation of God. And then last week, Matt looked at this moment where the Israelites cross over the River Jordan into the land that God has promised them. And this powerful moment where God holds back a river on both sides so they can pass on the gap in between. And then commands them on the other side, grab the biggest stone you can grab, pile them up, make this big tower. And every time someone asks, what's with the weird big pile of stones? Tell them the story of what God did here today. Matt reminded us that previous events are not simply history, but his story. There you go. And the reason we remember and celebrate all that was done is to believe and petition God that he will do it again. What an encouragement to ask God to do it again. I've seen you do stuff before. Would you do it again? Do it again in me, in Bristol, in this nation, in the world. And so today we come to this moment where they've crossed the River Jordan. They are now in enemy territory. The territory that has been promised to them by God. And they're approaching Jericho. It's the first city that they'll need to take in order to claim this land that God has promised them. They're outmanned. They're outgunned. Jericho is huge. It's fortified. It's got a massive standing army. It's a vast city. And we come to this passage in Joshua 5. 13 to 6.5. If you want to, the screens are fully dead, aren't they? So if you want to grab your phone to read along with me, I'll read it out. If you go on Instagram, Jesus will know, and he'll tell me, and I'll have words with you at the end. Okay, Joshua 5.13. It says, now when Joshua was nearing Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. 
And Joshua did so. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went in and no one came out. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. If you've heard me speak before, you might have clocked that I am a bit of a nerd about certain things. And one of the things that I'm particularly nerdy about and I love to geek out about is food. I love food. I love cooking. I love barbecuing. My barbecue has basically been lit nonstop for the last two weeks now. I love watching cooking and barbecuing shows. I love going to visit different cultures and eating their food. I love sharing meals with people. I love catering equipment. I've watched multiple documentaries on how chef's knives are made and how they should be maintained. I love reading books about cooking, biographies of chefs. I love learning about how food is produced. I love to nerd out about like field to fork. I love food. And one of the chefs that I particularly love is a guy called Anthony Bourdain. You might have heard of him. And essentially, he ran a very famous French restaurant in New York. And then he decided that he hated most of the people who were eating there, all these Wall Street types who were there to be seen to be there rather than because they actually cared about food. Um, And so he decided to just sack it all off. And he set off around the world meeting people who cook street food, you know, the food of the people, um, and eating with them in parts of the world that aren't that well known for their cuisines. He has this epic show called Parts Unknown, would highly recommend. Literally got Hannah and I through lockdown when we couldn't travel anywhere. We just sat in our living room and just chewed through episode after episode of it. It's so good. Anyway, I am a huge Bourdain fangirl. And he wrote this. Everyone should know how to roast a chicken. It is a life skill that should be taught to small children at school. The ability to properly prepare a moist yet thoroughly cooked bird with a nice crispy skin should be a hallmark of good citizenship, an obligation to your fellow man. Everyone walking down the street should be reasonably confident that the random person next to them is prepared, if called upon, to roast a chicken. I love that. I would put my name to that as the mark of a good citizen. It's what he believes makes a good human being. I wonder what you would write if you were asked the same question. I wonder what you'd write if you were asked what the hallmark of a good follower of Jesus was. There's one to puzzle over this week. What would you say? What even is a good follower of Jesus? And I think in our passage today, we see two things that are required of Israel. Holiness and trust. Holiness and trust. So here we are. We're before the plains of Jericho. The Israelite army is coming up to their first big challenge. The first city in the land which God has told them he's giving to them to be theirs. They've sent in spies and they've seen that in worldly terms it's looking like it's not going to end well. 
And Joshua, their leader, he goes up to see what's in front of them. And he finds a man standing in his path, decked out for war with a drawn sword in his hand. And fair play to Joshua, he really took Isaac's preach about him being commissioned and not qualified to heart. Because he walks up to the guy and he says, are you for us or for our enemies? This word that he uses there, it means basically he gets up in his face. He gets up in his face and he asks us, are you for us or for our enemies? Basically he's saying, am I going to fight you to the death or are you going to fight for me and my army? And the man replies, neither. But as the, the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua hits the deck fast. What is this about? Who is this man? The commander of the army of the Lord. What does that mean? Is he an angel? Well, Joshua's reaction is to hit the deck. The passage says he falls face down to the ground in reverence. And interestingly, the man doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't tell him off for that. Jump with me to Revelation, the last book of the Bible. John, who wrote it, has had this insane, amazing vision of the end of all time when God will right all the wrongs, come and dwell among his, his people and restore all of creation. And at the end of Revelation 22, he writes this after this vision. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who'd been showing them to me. He bows at the feet of the angel who's passed on this vision to him, thinking, man, you're pretty holy. And then it says, but he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of the scroll. Worship God. The angel's horrified. The angel says, John, get up. Don't worship me. I'm just a created being like you. If you worship created things, you will ruin yourself. I'm not worthy of it. I'm no different to you. Worship God. He is the one who is worthy of it. It's a breach of God's covenant with his people that they should worship him and him alone. And the angel wants no part in it. He rebukes John. He says, worship God alone. But interestingly, that's not what happens with Joshua. Not only does the man not rebuke Joshua for falling on his face in worship, but he doubles down. It says, the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. He tells Joshua to consecrate himself. Clean yourself. Get your shoes off. They symbolize dirt and impurity. Make yourself clean because this is a holy moment. Therefore, we are left to assume that the man who Joshua meets is one deserving of worship. One who is worthy of worship. The one who comes, sent from the Father in human form to deliver his people. There is one person in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whose unique purpose is to come to us and relate us to God. He is God and he enables us to relate to God. He is the Lord, Jesus. And in meeting him, the only logical thing to do is to hit the deck. Because Jesus is absolutely holy. 
We see this throughout the Old Testament. Jacob seeks to meet with God and he ends up in a wrestling match. Job wants to meet with God and he ends up in a tornado. Moses wants to meet with God and he ends up hitting the deck in front of the burning bush, hiding his face from the holiness of God. In the New Testament, Thomas wants to meet God and he, all he can breathlessly utter before the risen Jesus is my Lord and my God. Joshua wants to meet with God and he meets a man decked out for war. Powerful. There is nothing warm and fuzzy about meeting God. The holiness of God is his greatness, his unfathomableness, his might, his righteousness. It's overwhelming. There's no word in English for that feeling. We see it throughout, throughout the Bible and there's no English word to describe it. The best we can do is to translate it into a phrase. It's to see the holiness of God is to simultaneously shrink back in terror and draw close in awe. Because Jesus is absolutely holy. We have to see the holiness and the greatness of Jesus, not just his love. Because if you don't see his holiness and his greatness, then his love is of no real transforming power to you. They are inseparable. And it's in light of this revelation of who this man is that we see the madness of Joshua's question. Are you on our side or our enemy's side? Neither, says the Lord. Some translations have it as simply no. Jesus is like, you're asking the wrong question, mate. Man, I can't tell you how many times I've been in Joshua's shoes. Look, Lord, I want to do this thing. Are you with me on this or against me? Or, Lord, I quite fancy this job. Jesus, are you with me or against me? Listen, Jesus, I want my mate to come to know you. Are you with me on this or against me on this? I'm keen to pursue this relationship, Lord. Are you with me or against me on this? And P.S., if you're silent, I'm going to assume you're with me. I don't know if you can relate to that. How often I have said, I'm the general here. I'm the head of this army. I'm the leader of this life. Are you on my side or not, Lord? How often I've tried to make God my number two as I go out to do stuff, even stuff that I'm doing in his name. And you see his response to Joshua. Neither. No. You're asking the totally wrong question. It sounds like you don't even understand who I am. Look at me. I am all holiness, all goodness, all justice, all righteousness, all powerful. You want me to be your assistant? The question is not whether I am on your side, but whether you're on mine. And Joshua hits the deck and consecrates himself before his holy God. Think of the criminals crucified alongside Jesus. Luke writes this, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. See, one comes to Jesus with his agenda. I want to be saved. Get me off this cross. Are you for me or against me in this? Whereas the other realizes it's not about whether Jesus is for or against him, which he obviously is, by the way, but whether he is for or against Jesus. And so he asks him to be with him. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Joshua realizes the error of his question. He forgets his needs and he comes before his holy God on his knees. And you know, this isn't to say that Jesus doesn't care about your needs. God absolutely cares about your needs. You may have come here tonight with some really big stuff that you're dealing with at the moment. And God absolutely cares about that stuff. He cares about it more than you could imagine. You might have come here tonight with some little stuff that you're dealing with. God still cares deeply about it. He cares about it even more than you do. We're taught to pray, give us today our daily bread. But that comes after we've prayed, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The only reaction to encountering Jesus, the Holy One, is to hit the deck. Get on your knees before the holy and righteous King. Come before him on your knees, not with your needs, and acknowledge who he is. Tell him you need him. This is the place where all has to begin. When we think about going out, if we don't start there, we just shouldn't go at all. I recently read about a painting by the famous Italian Renaissance artist, Filippino Lippi. He painted this piece in the 15th century called The Virgin and Child with Saints Jerome and Dominic. And essentially what the painting shows is Mary, the mother of Jesus, holding the infant Christ with these two saints either side praying. And for years, apparently, this painting had really bothered critics. The problem was the proportions were slightly off. Lippi's use of color and composition were exceptional like his other works. There was real mastery in his brushwork, so it wasn't like he'd had a rogue off day. Knowing as little as I do about classical art, I assume one knocks out an oil painting in a day. I don't really know. If you know more about it, you can let me know. The problem was, though, that the hills and the mountains in the background, they looked wrong. Oddly exaggerated, almost they might fall out of uh, the painting at any moment. And the two saints in the foreground, they looked weird and awkward and not quite right. And it bothered critics for years. The art critic Robert Cohen was no exception. And he pondered all of these things as he stood before the painting where it hanged in the National Gallery in London. And it was at this moment that he had a revelation that would silence generations of critics to follow. You see, he realized that the painting had never been designed to hang in a gallery. Lippi's painting had actually been commissioned to hang in a place of worship and prayer. And in this moment, in the middle of the National Gallery, the critic dropped to his knees before the painting. And he suddenly saw what generations of critics had missed. From this new vantage point, Robert Cumming found himself gazing up at a perfectly proportioned piece. 
The foreground had naturally moved to the background while the saints seemed settled, their awkwardness like the painting itself turning to grace. Mary now looked intently and kindly at him as he knelt at her feet between the saints, Dominic and Jerome. Because it wasn't the perspective of the painting that had been wrong all this time, but the perspective of those looking at it. When viewed from the knees, the painting came alive in a beautiful and transformational way. On your knees before the holy God is the only place where the call to go even makes sense. Acknowledging his holiness and our need of him is where it all begins. Begins? Begins. Just like Joshua does. As I said, I'm speaking as much to myself uh, as to anyone else here because so often I decide what I'm going to do, where I'm going to go, which friend needs Jesus, or what I'm being called into. I decide all that uh, first, and then I say, yeah, God, uh, could you give me a little bit of help to like, help me get there? I don't know if you relate to that, but I love what we see here. God gives Joshua his marching orders after confronting him with his holiness. And that's not new. God informs Moses of his mission after confronting him with his holiness. God commissions Isaiah after demonstrating his holiness to him. God charges Ezekiel right after he encounters God's holiness. God commissions Peter after absolutely wrecking him with the power of his grace. Because it's all about him, right? For the follower of Jesus... Christ's salvation, his saving presence, his holiness, his free gift of new life in him. They all precede his call to a life of discipleship. And trust and holiness are directly linked, right? Kneeling is vulnerable. Joshua's the general of an army. He knows how to scrap, right? He was going to scrap this guy. And uh, he probably realized that when you're going to fight someone, they've got a massive sword in their hand. You probably don't kneel in front of them with your head like at their sword level and unable to run away or move unless you trust them. He gets himself into a position of trust and vulnerability as he is completely rocked by the holiness of God. And I love what we see in our passage. Joshua has that moment where he forgets his needs, his requests, his plan, what he's supposed to be doing. He falls on his knees in adoration before his holy God. He consecrates himself. He endeavors to be holy because the God that he kneels before is holy. And then he gets the commission. But the commission begins with this. See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. God literally starts the battle plan with, I've already won. I have delivered. It's past tense. Victory over Jericho is done and it is a gift from God alone. He's already won. The victory is already won. The battle that remains is a heart battle of Joshua and the Israelites to trust in God to claim the victory that he has already won. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has overcome. He has overcome all the darkness, pain, and brokenness of this world, all the hurt we face. He has the victory. He is and he will make all things new. 
We are called to a life of trust in the victory that Jesus has already won. So the go is a big one. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to all of creation. But as we go, we acknowledge that it all begins on our knees before a holy God. That that is the place that the call to go even makes sense. Where we surrender as the leader. Where we surrender ourselves and proclaim that we are for all that God has for us. And as we face our Jerichos, which we all face, we can know that the battle belongs to him. He's the one who will fight it. He's the one who already holds the victory. And our invitation is to trust in the victory that he has already won through his death and resurrection. Why don't we pray? Should we stand together? Lord Jesus, we thank you for all that you are. We thank you that your character is beautiful and good. We thank you that as we gaze upon you, as we're blown away by your holiness, your greatness, your hugeness, all your power, we see that you are good and beautiful and kind and for us. Lord, we thank you that when we see you, we can't help but draw close in awe of you. Lord, we thank you that on our knees, in awe of your great holiness, is where life makes sense. And we thank you that you invite us into that place. And when we ask to meet with you, we find you. So, Lord, we pray that you would draw us deeper. Draw us deeper into adoration and awe at your holiness and your goodness, your character. Would you reveal yourself to us? And as we trust in you, would we be blown away by uh, the cooling that you have for us, the plans that you have for us, the places that you lead us. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.